0: Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is part two of our continuing mission to explore how Star Trek Almost didn't become a thing with big special thanks to our super producer and research associate for this series, Mr. Max Williams. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Here
0: here on Earth, they they call me Ben, they call you Noel, and uh, Noel, before we got into a lot of this research, I knew Star Trek had some dodgy times in its earlier days, but I personally did not know how close it came to being canceled just so often. Yeah, because
3: it's just, you know, it's just something that we've always known ever since we were a kid, whether it was the thing that we, you know, really got our gears turning as far as particular sci-fi properties or not. It's just ubiquitous, you know, and a big part of that, I think, had maybe more to do with the movies than the series. Itself because, like you mentioned in the top of uh, episode one, here Star Wars began its life as in, in the cinema, you know, and became a cultural phenomenon. There he is. We got our uh, we got another costume change going on with Vader here, uh, who never actually said, Luke, I am your father. No, no spoiler. He, didn't. He, he said, uh Something similar, also just like uh, no, Ricky.
1: I am your father. That's right, and
3: also Lucy. L- Ricky never famously never actually said Lucy. You got some splaining to do. He said some iteration of that that wasn't he exactly. He said,
0: that. Uh, "Lucille, I am your father." Yeah, that's that's the one.
1: And another one. Uh, Kirk never said, "Beam me up, Scotty." Never said.
0: Not once. Mm. Uh so we've got we've got this strange tale about something that it has become bedrock foundation of pop culture and we introduced you to b Joe, uh Betty Trimble Betty Joe Trimble who uh, is known as the woman who saved Star Trek by leading a letter writing campaign that got it to a third season we ended on, uh, we ended at a crossroads because NBC had baked in a poison pill to their third season. They dramatically cut the budget, the quality of the show suffered, and it looked like the third season was going to be the last hurrah. But we had a bit of a silver lining because three seasons means a show can get into syndication. When a show gets into syndication, that means the reruns can go anywhere, everywhere, anytime a network has a free slot, whether 4 p.m. or whether 11 a.m.
3: Right, because in those days, um, it certainly wasn't the kind of mega- big-dollar syndication deals that we know of today, like with things like Seinfeld and all of that and, and all, all the different licensing deals that go into having shows appear on streaming services and all that. This was just more of kind of like a way of filling time. Even if a show wasn't a hit, they owned the intellectual property, the studios and the networks owned the show, so they it was fair game for them to fill out their schedules uh, at a time where it was very important to have something on the air during that broadcast
0: day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you'll still have some costs associated with airing reruns, right? People get checks every time a show is back on the air, but it's still much, much less expensive than making something new out of whole cloth and hoping that works. So this syndication turns out to be the reason that you know about Star Trek today. Uh, we want to shout out Devin Maloney, who wrote Boldly, Going where no man or woman had gone before over at RookieMag.com. So let's paint the picture for you. You're in the 1970s, you own a television, you're you're watching TV. Uhf stations all over the United States would buy the rights to re-air part or all of those three seasons of Star Trek. And so this show began to hit airwaves on a daily basis, which meant that people who had missed it the first time around were much more likely to see it this time, and kids and young adults loved it. This was perfect for them. The war in Vietnam had closed. People were walking on the moon, and there were a lot of folks who found Star Trek at the right time in their lives. A brighter future seemed ahead. Now that we knew real-life astronauts could go to the moon... It didn't seem too out of bounds to think future humans could explore the stars.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, more zeitgeisty stuff. It was already kind of within the realm of possibility. And Star Trek, you know, from this, well, I mean, I, don't, I know there was the whole, like, you know, Kirk um, having dalliances with green women and fighting kind of bad rubber monsters, like in, you know, in the desert or whatever, <laughs> in these desert planet kind of situations. But- born 100%. But the, the basis of Star Trek was a somewhat believable future, wherein we, we, did, we are able to, you know, populate the stars and live in this sort of idyllic kind of, you know, utopia, you know, in space. So it really was something that kind of captured people's imaginations in a very
0: big way. 100%. Uh, look, there's also a role that Star Wars played in this. Just holding on my Darth Vader mask again uh, because these reruns of a show that had been canceled were becoming incredibly popular, and the Star Wars universe was a blockbuster film event. Paramount had acquired the rights to Star Trek from Lucille's Lucille Ball's studio, Desilu. And they said, you know what? There's a lot of interest here. People like space movies. Let's take this crew to the big screen and that's when the first Star Trek film comes out 1979 Star Trek called in a burst of creativity the motion picture yes. uh, which you know felt like a 4:30 on a Friday decision but it it, it was okay it was all right. It was a barnstormer. Star
1: Trek: The Motionless Picture. It's uh, yes, yes, boring you, film. You have this yeah. in the notes.
0: Yeah, uh, but they did have a sequel just a few years later. Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Much better title and super interesting story. If you saw the original episode that inspired it. That's right, and it and it
3: had a bona fide movie star in it as well, uh, with Ricardo Montalban um, playing this villain or reprising his role as the uh, the titular Khan and uh, and and you know pr- pr- portraying his wrath in, in Star Trek
1: Two. I gotta I gotta interject. Are do we are we gonna do some Khan screams?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say. Can we play the the clip, the Khan clip? Or basically, if if legal won't let us get away with it, it's this.
1: You have to shake your face in a very uncontrollable, raspy way While it turns really red. Yeah, you nail it. Yeah.
3: real scenery chewing. Uh, it's, it's sort of the equivalent, of the the, uh, the space equivalent of like the the part in the in any you know kind of a B movie where an actor drops to his knees and says no. Fist shakes, oh, at the, as the sky. camera zooms out through yeah. the roof, you
0: know. To show you the full extent of the uncaring universe. Look, the Wrath of Khan slaps. It is a good film. And uh the original series for two decades, for 20 years, it gets all these excellent ratings. Anytime it's in syndication be broadcast. And the other films do well at the box office, especially Wrath of Khan. By 1986, Paramount starts calling this once derided universe its crown jewel of programming, and they get Gene back on the scene, and they say, all right, let's make a new Star Trek series, What, what one for the kids. And uh, that one ultimately gets bogged down in production limbo, right? Production hell, they call it sometimes. There are concerns about the budget, legal concerns about usage rights and so on, but Paramount and Gene still agree that they want a new iteration of Star Trek. Eventually, what they develop becomes called Star Trek: The Next Generation, or STTNG, for the uh, the <laughs> for the fans. But still, you know, what's weird to me is, despite the fact that this was now recognized as a license to print money, a lot of networks still weren't willing to greenlight. The next generation, NBC and ABC said, we'll do a pilot no further. CBS and and Fox, which was a thing by then, said they came with these weird kind of half-measure offers. Like, let's do it as a as a limited miniseries, you know, a a made-for-tv kind of long film. So Paramount and Gene say, you know what, we're gonna skip. The networks entirely. We're not going to mess with the big three ABC, CBS, and NBC. We're going to go straight to smaller TV stations around the country. I want
3: to do a quick, uh, Noel Brown, famous walkback. Marcardo Montalban wasn't exactly a, a A-list uh, movie star at the time. He was much more known for television roles. Um, and I think he was probably a bigger star uh, in Latin America than he was in, in the United States. And I think he got a lot of uh, acting um, experience playing kind of a, a, a foreign villain, you know, like uh, which was very much a, a trope of the time. You know, anybody with an accent and who looked a little bit different would often be cast as a villain. And of course, that's what he was cast as here. But if you look at his IMDb, a lot of TV work. He was also on uh, Fantasy Island and and uh, things like that, like I think Hawaii Five-0 a little later. But um, so he was kind of still in this middle ground of, of, uh, of Icon, you know, and he really, I think, is probably to many known
0: most for his
3: portrayal of, of Khan.
0: That's how I knew him
2: On demand, temp to hire, part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
3: You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man... How have I been living like this? What's wrong with me?
0: <laughs> You're right, Noel. It's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paid a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk,
3: text, and data for 15 bucks a month.
0: To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/slash ridiculous.
3: That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous.
0: Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional
3: taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Back to this setup of the... Of something unprecedented and very smart that Paramount and Gene Roddenberry do, it's kind of similar to how when Elon Musk, love him or hate him, uh, got Tesla to a point where he didn't have to go to a dealership. You could buy Tesla cars directly from the manufacturer. These guys were selling their product, Star Trek, directly to individual network affiliates and independent stations. And this made them able to circumvent so much bureaucracy and red tape and studio politics. They were selling The Next Generation directly to the TV stations that would air it. And eventually, Gene and Paramount start distributing the shows directly to fans, and they circumvent major broadcast outfits altogether. They're getting past the fat cats. The Next Generation comes out in 1987— And it's on 137 local stations across the country. At the end of its run, it was and remains the most successful Star Trek series of all time. Seven seasons, great ratings throughout all seven of those seasons, even after the man himself, Gene Roddenberry sadly passes away in 1991. And um, there's a, there's a, line that you pulled, Max, that really, really stood out to me. And and I think to all of us talking about how Star Trek almost died. This is that Entertainment Weekly article. This is from June 4th, 1993. Uh, We may have mentioned this in part one. The thing is, this is an epic comeback. And we'll just give you the, the quote here. In the years since, Star Trek has exploded into an entertainment phenomenon of galactic proportions. Reruns of the original series are still broadcast hundreds of times a day and have been translated into 47 languages. Among its stellar offspring are six feature films, which have earned more than $470 million. Two sequel series, Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, currently TV's top-rated syndicated dramas. Here's Max's favorite line. Not even Spock could have calculated the odds on a comeback like that. Spock, uh, what what's the other Spock quote? The needs of the many. The
1: needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah. Live long and prosper. That's a Live Spock thing, and right? Prosper. Yeah. That's Live another long. One. He had a lot of great quotes. Mm. <laughs> so, you, could argue, you could argue he was the true star of the original series. Oh, no much question. to William Shatner's chagrin.
0: Oh yeah. And uh, you know, it's no secret now that there were a lot of rough patches for the original cast in terms of stardom, in terms of I, things as small as like who gets to say the uh, uh, an amount of lines in an episode. But, you know, fame is never 100% uh, <laughs> angel farts and, and trumpets. There's always, it's always something that comes along with it. But they made history, and it looked like Star Trek was finally here to stay. Or was it?
3: Yeah, it kind of had a bit of a a period of, I guess, let's just say not greatness. It sort of fell into kind of a bit of a a doldrum kind of period. Wouldn't you say, Max? How would you describe this as a a fan?
1: Yeah, I think a doldrum is a good way to describe it. I mean, it just feels like at one point it was just too much Star Trek. It was constant. It had been on the air for so long. And... Mm -hmm. Some of the series were less creative. I'm not taking a shot at DS9. That's obviously my favorite series. Mm -hmm. That was great. But it just kind of was like, ah, Star Trek's on. Like, it always is on.
0: Right. Yeah, there was... uh, You you could also call this a threshold of diminishing returns, right? You could see Star Trek, the original series, on all the time, but you had probably seen all of the episodes, you know? And the... Yeah, there's, there's kind of a... A low point, not quite a nadir, but um, there's definitely kind of a slump in the story here. So Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country, comes out and after it, the cast of the original Star Trek, they're not doing a lot of stuff in that universe. You'll see them make cameo appearances, you'll see them show up at um, maybe conventions or publicity runs. The Next Generation also concludes in 1994. The main cast is, again, they're very successful, so they go on to make four movies themselves, some of which I thought were pretty good. And the Trek franchise, the Enterprise, you could say, Isn't continues amazing. to push on. Uh, That's where you get three more series, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and... Um, I don't know. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Uh, Yes, there's too much Star Trek, but I thought I thought Deep Space Nine had something really interesting involved because they're not traveling out. Their ship is, well, for the most part, their ship is by this mysterious wormhole, right? And a lot of things are traveling to them or they're sending people out. Is that correct? More of a space station kind of situation? Mm
1: Yeah. Yeah. So DS9 is, it's an ds9 is a very different series than all the other star trek series that's what it stands out to i actually two weekends ago went back and watched the ds9 documentary to make sure i was like up to date on that one but Mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's a very different one because they're there it's all about you know galaxy politics and stuff like that yeah yeah and it's also broke from the mold of tos and tng where it wasn't monster of the week it was had some serial like elements i mean they have at one point the show ends on a 10 episode arc and stuff like that
0: yeah and also uh they do some they do some really interesting off the map kind of things right with the gamma quadrant and this other analog to the federation called the dominion but Anyhow, yeah, so they're still being experimental, but to the audience, a lot of this seems like, okay, more of the same, you know, like, oh, yes, I like fajitas, but I don't eat fajitas every day, so stop trying to sell them to me. As a result, we see the casual audience falling off, and Star Trek decides to take a four-year break. There were no new episodes of any Star Trek stuff from about 2005 to 2017. There were movies. That's the Lost Connection we're talking about in part one. J.J. Abrams runs Point on – they go kind of multiverse. It's like a reboot. Same characters, but they have different actors, younger actors. And there are still some cameos. We don't want to spoil it for you, but in in the universe, you can consider this kind of an – alternate timeline and those were all financial successes they did the con story again right what was that into darkness
1: yep yeah had, uh, benedict cumberbatch to play Khan, and he, he benedict cumberbatch is an amazing actor i mean it's not his fault the movie was poorly written
3: i thought the first one was pretty cool First the, one was actually, the first J.J. Abrams one. It was fun. It was a little more uh, obviously Star Warsy than Star Trekky, uh, because it was you know had to be like a big blockbuster-y kind of action vibe, which really is never what Star Trek was, even in the movies. It was a little more dialogue based than it was like big action set piece based.
0: Yeah, and I I enjoyed it. I think it it pulled the nostalgia strings especially the first one in in the way it was calculated to do. But, all right, now we're getting closer to the present day. In the present day, Star Trek has become, depending on whom you ask, bigger than it had ever been before. Like Palpatine, it rose stronger and more powerful when it was struck down. Uh, So, 2017, there's a new series that comes out, Discovery. And Discovery is successful, so... CBS, all acts, uh, Paramount Plus. There's a lot of studio politics with this. Basically, Paramount. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They they uh, put out the new these new iterations, and one of them follows Picard, so much so that it's called Picard. He's the titular character, and it's all about his life after the uh, events of Star Trek The Next Generation. Kind of panned. Max, what's your thoughts? What I are your thoughts is. on
3: Picard?
1: Picard, um, second season of Picard was much better than the first season. The yeah. first season was kind of, uh, I'm really excited for the third season, which, I mean, comes out in like three weeks.
0: Yeah, so. I, I watched I watched as well, and there were a lot of interesting threads they introduced there, but um, not all of them came to fruition. You still, you don't I know. Love,
1: I love having Jerry Ryan back. Jerry Ryan is amazing in mm-hmm.
0: it. Yeah. And there's some great stuff going on with the Borg. No spoilers, but I, lo- I love the Borg as villains. So there's now they're their franchise. Now this is kind of similar to what The Big Mouse has been doing with Star Wars. They say, let's take this universe and put it in other genres. That's where you get stuff like uh Lower Decks, which is an animated series that is meant to be comedic. And it's headed by a guy named Mike McMahon, who used to uh, be the showrunner for Rick and Morty. Uh, And then they have another thing that I'm not as familiar with. Maybe you guys can help me out here. Uh, Prodigy, which is a collaboration with Nickelodeon.
3: That's right. And it is trying to, you know, kind of introduce, I mean, with all of this legacy material out there, uh, certainly um, an attempt to reinvigorate some of that intellectual property and introduce younger people to the series. Um, Because I'll tell you what, as a father of a a 14-year-old nerd, they're out there. Um, And it may not be something Star Trek isn't really something quite front and center, you know, for that audience. So to have kind of a clever cartoon version of it is a good way to
0: bring new, uh, younger folks into that world. Yeah, and there's more stuff that's happening as well. Strange New Worlds, which has been nominated for an Emmy, uh, tells the story of Captain Pike and the Enterprise, back from that first pilot, The Cage, which we mentioned in part one. And I've really enjoyed watching that. Uh, I've also, maybe as we get toward the end of this series of explorations of Star Trek, we talk a little bit about its role in the greater real-life, earthbound culture. I mean, we mentioned this not just in part one of this series, but in multiple conversations on Ridiculous History. This show comes out in the 60s. It's multicultural, multiracial. Uh, the cast itself is a statement that not everybody wants to acknowledge, right, in in the world in which it was created. And uh, Roddenberry made these Great points, and he said, You know, this is the 23rd century. Do you think people are still going to be as intolerant as they are in the 1960s? I hope not. Uh, and the uh, this was a big enough deal that Soviet Russia's state run paper complained that there wasn't a Soviet Union representative on there, and that's why in season two, you got Chekhov on the scene because they said mm-hmm. oh no no yeah good point okay no it's it's a very good
3: point and it shows that he was able to put his money where his mouth was in terms of leaning into that multicultural perspective so you know again th- there there is some pretty cerebral kind of uh, allegorical type of storytelling in this show. If somewhat veiled social commentaries, it was kind of a little bit bombastic for the time to address some of the issues that the show did. For example, uh, in the episode, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, um, the uh, the Enterprise... Has a run-in with a planet where the uh, the inhabitants of that planet are black on one side and white on the other side, and there is a uh, burning uh, racial resentment between those who are black on the right half and those who are black on the left. And it's just a very interesting way of handling that type of, of, uh, of attitude. It was very you know pre- prevalent in America, but also clever in a way because it wasn't right out in your face to the point where – people could, you know, protest it exactly if they weren't smart enough to kind of read what they were actually trying to do. Uh, you also had kind of lampooning of some of the Cold War uh, paranoia and sentiments of the time in episodes like A Private Little War.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this is something powerful. and we, we see a similar phenomenon in The Twilight Zone, which is by far one of my favorite uh, programs ever committed to television. In in these things, uh, you will see that they're it, Law and Order SVU actually does a lot of this. You will see recent news stories that get um, that that get used as the creative fuel for a story in Star Trek. Uh, the The idea of private little war. I don't want you to think I was ignoring your point, Noel. The idea of private little war is uh, about a move to – about a a problem. Should we help a primitive people in a guerrilla war? Because there's this planet where the Klanons are – waging war, right? They're waging a proxy war, and the Klanons, who are often a stand-in for the USSR, honestly, have given arms to one side of the war, and the Federation has to decide whether they're going to violate the prime directive and give the other side of the war uh, weapons, right? So we see that the Cold War idea of fighting via proxies in a third country is very much on the mind of the Star Trek writers, and you're able to talk about these conundrums in a way that you couldn't in a nonfiction show. You can always just say, hey, these are aliens. This is art. If you see something in it, brother, that's on you. Uh, And you can also see, like, yeah, a lot of geopolitical stuff is echoed in these shows, and they had to because it was taboo to talk about politics openly. That's right. And also, just, just to backtrack a little bit to
3: something that you said that maybe folks might not fully be aware of, the idea of the prime directive we've kind of hinted at, it really is the guiding philosophy of the crew of the of the Starship Enterprise. It's sort of like a leave-no-trace kind of situation where they're exploring and learning, but they're not out to influence, you know, uh, geopolitics. They sometimes get caught up in the middle of it and are left with some tough choices uh and again you said it, at times they've had to somewhat go against the prime directive for the greater good but in general their goal is to be as neutral as possible and seek out new life and and then explore you know the deepest reaches of of space but not it's not a conquering force and when and they and they portray conquering forces like the klingons as villainous to some degree but then there also there's a complexity there and so it's not black or white they definitely are uh, handling a lot of these things with a lot of care and a lot of thought and if you want to watch it strictly as a science fiction situation uh, and just have a good time and go on a little romp you can do that or you can look at the deeper levels and really enjoy you know the the care with which they approach these uh, very complex geopolitical ideas
0: yeah Yeah, and this, again, this is something that Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry, is acutely aware of to the point where he says, I don't consider myself a science fiction writer. I'm interested in what's happening on this planet and what may happen. In our society, we're treating man less and less like an individual, and more like a social organism. And I think that's one of the really inspiring points of Star Trek. Now, Trekkies will be the first to tell you that Star Trek doesn't get everything right all the time. Uh, But also, you know, when you think about the message, the idea here that you could do your best to be a benevolent force in the universe without being an imperialistic force, then you see a hard lesson that a lot of uh, historical real-world superpowers should probably pay more attention to in the modern day. Uh, Looking at you, Henry Kissinger, let me check and see if he's still alive. (laughs) Right, diplomacy.
3: You know that's a huge part of of, of what makes,
0: uh, you
3: know, uh, John Luke Picard in particular of a very compelling figure because he's always weighing, you know, this kind of rhetoric and how to properly, uh, you know, approach that prime directive. And so diplomacy becomes a big part of it. It's probably also a reason that some people maybe are more Star Wars people than Star Trek people because they find some of that stuff to be a little dull, you know, or a little too mired in the in the political side of things. Um, so it's like become this almost like Stones versus the Beatles uh kind of divide, where it's like, are you Star Trek or Star Wars? I think it's kind of a false equivalency. they're both very different and interesting in their own rights, sort of like apples and oranges, you know
0: yeah well they're all they're all uh science fiction you know they're just very very different. It's like the Stones and Beatles are are music and listening to one doesn't mean you're not going to be able to enjoy the other. I would say they're not mutually exclusive.
3: No, they're certainly not but there is like it says something about you kind of as a listener and as a fan which one you like better. Like some people like the Stones because they're more rock and roll and like, you know, rebel and kind of lo-fi and a little bit just more kind of hard edge whereas the Beatles are a little more, you know, that psychedelic kind of high production value you know studio driven band but then if you look at their careers and their canons both have examples of both you know what i mean there are pieces of of each of those styles within the the catalog of both of those bands as are their pieces of the diplomacy and the you know um the action side of things in star wars versus
0: star trek Mm -hmm. definitely space operas and i want to uh I want to present an, another installment of Ben's continuing obsession with Henry Kissinger. Uh, just confirmed, uh, Henry is alive still. He is 99. And for a reminder for everybody playing this game at home, if he makes it to May 27th of this year, he will be 100 years old. Wow. Uh, he, is, he is really pissed some people off. But then again, so have some episodes of Star Trek. Segway! <laughs> oh, expert. Expertly done, Ben.
2: Just being me. Amy Winehouse, back to black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R. Under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters, May 17th.
3: It's true. And 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 for good reason, uh, we're gonna devote a little bit of this section to episodes of Star Trek that either hit the mark too hard and pissed people off, or that absolutely deserve to be seen as bad examples of the show. Max, I I think you should leave the charge on this one in a lot of ways because as you mentioned off air, a lot of folks at certain points sort of accused it of being too woke or too like social justice warrior-y and that this is like sort of like a new thing, but that's not really the case. It was sort of that from the start.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's even quotes from Ron Bear early on where he's like, he had pitched a show before the original series and it got shot down for being like, too controversial stuff. So he basically, in some ways, built the original series around that other show he had made just to kind of like, you know, put a guise under it. But I mean, yeah, every single series of Star Trek has episodes that are, you know, can be viewed as by some people as preachy or pushing morals, but are just, you know, social commentary. I mean, I think the best one of them all is probably Far Beyond the Stars, which is from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is where uh, Captain Cisco Avery Brooks is transported from modern times where they are so 24th century back to the 1950s and as a black man him experiencing all the racial injustice of the time and it's also directed by Avery Brooks and is just one of the most beautiful episodes of Star Trek ever made
3: and you also mentioned Max in, in the research material for this that one of the new series Strange New Worlds already kind of hit it off with a bang in terms of, you know, in this culture that we're living in now, people accusing it of tarnishing the legacy of Star Trek by being too, quote, woke or, you know, SJW. Uh, But again, to your point and the whole point, we've been talking about this whole time is that was sort of Roddenberry's, uh, you know, goal from the start. Again, woke is a term that's been maligned and sort of twisted and become this term of abuse or of being like overly PC or whatever it might be. But it's just interesting how people that make those arguments probably have never even seen the show.
0: Often, or have maybe read, uh, just just read a heated comment that they agreed with in a forum without having the full context. I, I want to talk about one of the, uh, I think, most meaningful episodes, Plato's Stepchildren. Yes. Yeah, the kiss heard around the world when Uhura and Captain Kirk Kind of trauma bond, and endure some terrible things that result in the actors kissing each other. This is an interracial kiss in 1968. uh, Nichelle Nichols, who plays Uhura, and William Shatner, who plays Kirk, are definite. Like they're definitely on air kissing. There's not a cutaway. There's not somebody mentioning it later. Uh, NBC was terrified. Uh, They they were so worried about this, that they wanted to have two different versions of the episode. One for the majority of the United States, and then one for the southern states, where uh, they would go through this terrible experience, and at the end, they would come in for the kiss, and then they would hug. Uh, they actually had takes of this, and according to the story, not confirmed, but credit credit to William if this is true apparently he purposely sabotaged the hugging take so that they would have to have to use the kiss everywhere they aired it or they would have to blow a lot of money to reshoot it uh and this is this is crazy there was complaints but NBC was surprised and impressed maybe by the United States because there wasn't a huge backlash not near as much as they feared and uh people were genuinely positive in their reactions to this.
3: And, I mean, it genuinely earned the show historical goodwill and another kind of notch in the belt of Star Trek as being progressive during a time where maybe that wasn't always the easiest choice to make. Again, when we look at the backstory of it, the executives were always kind of uh, twitchy, you know, from the start, uh, you know, even back to, to the Lucy days. But whatever led to the end result. The end result was what it was and is a very important historical moment because I believe it maybe wasn't the very first interracial kiss that took place uh, on a large broadcast format like that, but it was one of them to be sure. And it was a very popular one on a very popular show and it made a lot of noise. And, you know, at the top of this segment, we kind of teased that some of these episodes pissed people off just because they were not very good. Uh, You know, you make a lot of shows Back in the day, you know a lot of these series had many 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 episodes they're not gonna all be hits. I think over 800 episodes of the series next generation um and Max, I just thought to wrap up today we could just go through a couple of uh, of pretty significant misses just in terms of like the quality of the show
1: okay you guys are you guys are ready for this becausecause what I'm gonna sure. do is I'm gonna just give you a very general description of these episodes I want to see what y'all's reaction is. I think I'm going to start with Let He Who Is Without Sin from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So premise of the episode is Jadzia, Dax, and Worf have started dating. And Dax is like fun, loving, and free. She's yay, happy. And Worf's all stoic and strong. She's like, we need to go on a vacation. That's what Dax is like. So they go on va- vacation to this planet called Ryza. And if you don't know what Riza is, it's like the horniest planet in the universe. Super horny.
0: It's like the galactic Ibiza.
1: Basically, yeah. So they get there and Dax is having fun and all that stuff. And Worf hates it. So Worf, and here's an important thing. Worf is in, Worf is a full-time main cast member in 11 seasons of Star Trek. There is no character who has more about him than Worf, basically. And he's this honorable guy. And so he's like there and he's like, I'm not having fun. I'm going to join this group of eco-terrorists and start tormenting and threatening these lives of all these people on this planet.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, catch catch them while they're horny, I guess.
1: Right, 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 exactly. And then at the end of the episode, nothing happens, and they go skinny dipping, it's all fine. And throughout the entire episode in the background, Quark's running around having orgies.
0: Ooh, wow. And then there's, speaking of things that are weird with characters, there's also Spock's brain, right? (gasps) That That one's where they just, they tell you that, uh, Oh, okay, guys, sorry, this didn't come up earlier, but for a while, Vulcans uh, will live without their brains. Wait, uh, You mean the
3: brainiest species uh, portrayed on the show can live without their brain. Is this sort of like a chicken with their head cut off kind of situation?
0: Basically, yes. Yeah, the idea is that uh, Spock can uh, <laughs> Spock can be operated by a remote control since he doesn't have higher order cognitive functions until they get his brain back. So they're on a brain heist. And uh, (laughs) Max, you described this as one of the few anti-bangers of the original series. And this is is held up often as an example to the class of the uh, decline in quality in the third season.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It is remarkably bad. It is just so, especially there's this remote that Dr. McCoy is walking around with, with a couple buttons and it controls Spock. It's just so bad.
0: Damn it, Jim. I'm a doctor, not a remote control operator.
3: Or a brain surgeon. That's a popular one. But uh, apparently it gets worse. There's folks in the Trek community that consider an episode of Voyager called Threshold kind of uh, the Spock's brain of that series. Uh, and Max, I believe you felt this episode was, in fact, the worst of all time within the entire Star Trek universe.
1: Yes. So, side note, I've been born and raised Trekkie. Both my parents are big Trekkies. My mom will not watch the series Voyager because of this episode. She saw it when it came came out and she's like, that is just the worst thing I've ever seen. And what really makes it so terrible is it kind of feels like a real episode of Star Trek. A lot of these really bad episodes you can tell from the get-go, oh, this is going to be bad. Sure. It feels like it's going to be a real episode at first, but it really kind of goes off the rails and just keeps going more and more off the rails. So it's like...
0: Would you say it goes Warp 10 off the rails, Max?
1: Yeah, so let's first and foremost start with this concept of Warp 10. Star Trek, (laughs) very nerdy concept. Warp 10 is basically written as something impossible. Warp 10 means infinite speed. And so Voyager, it takes place in the delta quadrant limited resources and all of a sudden one day they wake up and boom we get our like you know our little su- shuttlecraft going warp 10 for some reason Makes no sense. But then the guy Tom Paris goes warp ten, and he, can, which means he can be anywhere in the galaxy at any moment. It's all great, woohoo! Then he turns into a salamander because of some yes, weird advanced uh, evolutionary thing that causes by you going infinite velocity. Mm-hmm. I that is yet to, that has not really been
3: uh, laid out in the in the mm-hmm. lore of the show up to this point.
1: Yeah, no, it it doesn't make any sense. But it gets worse. It gets way worse. So then he decides he gets all like you know hot and heavy, and he abducts Captain Janeway, throws her in the shuttlecraft, takes her warp 10, turns her to a salamander. They go to find some planet. They get freaky on the planet, make more salamanders. Mm-hmm. Then everybody shows up who's not a salamander. Okay. And they they kind of just like pick up the salamanders. They carry them back to the ship. Just just the, just the Janeway and Paris salamander, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then it's like a quick cut and all of a sudden they're back human again. Never explained. They're just humans again. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, yeah, we're never going to talk about it. And then left the
0: children there. No child they left support, their children there. No alimony. Classic salamander. This is some anti-salamander propaganda when you think no about No
3: salamander it. children left behind, uh, Except, unfortunately, they were totally left by.
0: I have to say, Matt, really
3: quick, before you wrap this one up, uh, this as as a non trekkie uh, who really doesn't have much skin in the game, this sounds like a campy delight. I'm interested in this as a standalone bonkers piece of television, and I'm gonna seek it out. But please, oh
1: yeah, this is one. There's some Star Trek that it's like you jump into, you'll you'll not. Really, fully get this. You can just jump into cold and watch It's episode 15 of season two, and it's great because the person who was in charge of the teleplay, very involved in this episode, is Brandon Braga, who is like one of the big wigs. He's like important, in like a lot of the TNG movies, he was executive producer on Forager. And this, this episode is so infamous that it's now getting parodied in the new shows. Like <laughs> there's an episode of Lower Decks where mm-hmm. they have a salamander around. There is They even get uh, Kate Mulgrew, who's reprising the character of Catherine Janeway in Prodigy, to joke that I was once turned into a salamander. I've seen weirder things than this happen. It reminds me of that uh, that producer
3: who famously like always wanted, the Hollywood producer, who used to be Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. He was kind of uh, portrayed in um, Licorice Pizza by Bradley Cooper, but I'm forgetting the guy's name. But he famously always really wanted to have a movie with a giant spider in it and uh, finally got his way with Wild Wild West. But this sounds kind of like that, too. They gave, you know, they let the bigwig write his weird salamander script because he just, you know, he commanded that much, uh, you know. Know prominence and and uh, and and fear that they just. Oh, let's go ahead. Let him write one.
0: And with this, we have to say we have many more things to explore about Star Trek, the role of unsung heroes behind the screen, behind the page, the dark side of this massive pop cultural phenomenon. Uh, We can't wait for you to join us on that continuing journey. In the meantime, special thanks to super producer and research associate uh, Mr. Max Williams, also now our resident Vulcan cosplayer. Uh, Big, big thanks to Alex Williams who composed this track, which I would put up against the uh, Star Trek theme. Uh, also, thanks to Christopher Hossiotis, Yves Jeffcoat, and Jonathan Strickland.
3: And to you, Ben, thank you for, uh, for your uh, companionship and, and, and bravery on this ridiculous voyage to the stars. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.